Thank you, Chris, for reading God's word to us uh, this morning. Someone said to me during the week, uh, actually last week, that they think I should get up and uh, preach in the Neville the Shark outfit. (laughs) I could barely even see out of that thing, and I don't know how I would ever preach or why I would ever preach in a shark outfit. Um, So I've decided not to preach out of the Neville Shark outfit this morning. We'd rather the message comes out of the mouth. That's good. I'll try and keep it out of the mouth. Uh, If you'd like to ask a question about the passage this morning, you can do so uh, using slido.com with the hashtag HBSP. And I'll spend some time at the end of the service looking at some of those questions. Well, there comes a time in your life when you have to make a very difficult Uh, and extremely important decision. This decision is a decision uh, that comes as a result of us living in a Western country. It's a decision that can cause a lot of fights uh, and can cause a lot of uh, problems in relationships. It can actually divide relationships, this decision. And it is the decision of what to do with your old lounge. (laughs) At some point in our life, usually as we uh, move out of home and we uh, get get our own place, uh, usually we start off without much money and we get uh, given some lounges. Uh, Oftentimes these are old second-hand lounges. Oftentimes uh, we get them as an inheritance from our grandparents uh, that have passed away. Or possibly... You have gone on the Facebook marketplace and found a $3,000 lounge for 30 bucks. (laughs) And we all love a good bargain, so you grab it. But eventually there comes a point, and trust me, if you have not been there yet, you will be sometime in your life. You will get to this point where the the lounge has ripped fabric. The stitching has come undone. The cushions are old and saggy. And so you have to make the decision. What do you do with your old lounge? And you've got quite a few options, actually. The first option is just to get rid of it, to chuck it out. Out with the old, in with the new. And so you just put it out on the side of the road and hope somebody else picks it up and it becomes their problem. (laughs) Otherwise, you get a council cleanup and the council will come and get rid of it. Uh, After all, this lounge was either free or almost free. You had some great times with this lounge, but it's time for a new one. That's the first option. But there's also a second option. Perhaps you save it. You get out the sewing machine and you start stitching it up. After all, this lounge has now become iconic. This lounge has some great memories. This lounge is how you've raised your children, and maybe one day your children might want to inherit this lounge as well. So you get out the sewing machine and you stitch it all up. It can be fixed. And if you know anything about me, this would not be my option. I would prefer the first one, just get rid of it. But there's also a third option when it comes to this lounge, and that is called the full restoration. Most likely the bones of the lounge are still good. So you can remove all the fabric, remove all the cushions, and just keep the frame. Replace the cushions, replace the fabric. Basically, it means you have a new lounge. 
and you haven't actually gotten rid of the old one. Now, as I've already mentioned, it is an extremely important decision. But what to do with your old lounge is actually an easy decision in comparison to what we do with the Old Testament law. Just like the old lounge, some people quite simply believe that you just chuck out all the laws in the Old Testament. After all, Jesus has come to fulfill them. It is all done, it's finished, it's fulfilled. So we don't need to observe any of the Old Testament laws. And this makes it really easy for us because some of the Old Testament laws are really difficult and confusing. And I would not know how to even keep them today if I tried. But others still, like this lounge illustration, believe that there is still, they are still true and they can be followed. And what Jesus has done is he's just sort of stitched them up a little bit. He somehow makes them better and he gives us the ability to continue to obey them and follow them for as long as we need because he did not come to abolish them. Others still see this idea as a full restoration. Jesus keeps the bones of the law, but in fulfilling them, it's if he's kind of rewritten them. He takes them and changes some and leaves others. As an illustration, comparing an old lounge to the Old Testament law falls short in so many ways. But today I want to challenge us all not to have too narrow of an idea of what Jesus is saying when he says he has not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus isn't just talking about whether or not we continue to practice the Old Testament laws. He actually fulfills the entire Old Testament, and he does so in many ways. He fills them because the Old Testament in its entirety points to him. Let's pray before we look at this passage in more detail. Heavenly Father, we know that your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and it can pierce to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. And so, as we come before your word today, give us the ability to discern it, to have it impact our thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. Help us to do this as we live to glorify you. In your name we pray, amen. Well, last week, as I began this series on the Sermon of the Mount, we looked at the Beatitudes, these eight blessings that Jesus begins with. And I said that they describe the character of those who follow Jesus, the character of those who repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repentance brings on a character that is blessed because the character traits that are produced are the very same character traits that we find in Jesus. Repentance produces a character that imitates Jesus. Jesus, who is the one who has all authority and power in the kingdom of heaven. And the link between the Beatitudes and what comes next is the understanding that we do not live private lives. 
as we accept Jesus's authority and live under his authority, we will bear witness to him in this world. And so we have two metaphors before us this morning, metaphors of salt and light, that describe how we are precisely how to bear witness to him in this world. And so Jesus begins by saying, to those who live under his authority, those who are part of the new kingdom, they are the salt of the earth. Read with me again verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled, trampled under people's feet. Well, the two most common uses of salt in the Old Testament times was that of uh, a preservative and a seasoning. And we still use salt as a seasoning today quite a lot, but we don't use it as much as a preservative because we have refrigerators now. And because of that, we don't usually use salt as a preservative. But whether you're using, using salt as a preservative or a seasoning, the metaphor here still stands true. And what is interesting about salt is that it cannot actually lose its saltiness. Salt is such a stable compound that it cannot lose its taste, nor can it lose the ability to preserve things. It's just not possible. And so what is Jesus getting at here when he says, if salt has lost its taste? Well, the concern here is how effective the salt can be. And the effectiveness of the salt is completely dependent on the purity of the salt. See, as soon as salt is mixed with anything else, it becomes less effective, less salty. So the more impurities that get added, the more contaminated the salt gets, and the less it can be used as a preservative, the less it can be used as a seasoning. And eventually when it is mixed with other minerals so much, it can actually get to the point where it is completely useless. And so this metaphor about being salty is a warning for those of us who follow Jesus. A warning about how we can become ineffective in our witness for him when we are contaminated by the world and the worries that we face. How devastating to think that our witness here in our community might become so contaminated, so mixed up with impurities, and so diluted that it is completely useless and ineffective. If we as Christians here in 2508 are indistinguishable from the rest of our society, Jesus says here that we have lost our saltiness and we have become useless. And I think this is a real problem for us. I think that we are at risk of this happening to us. 
because we are all so concerned about being accepted by others. We're concerned about looking similar to those around us. And so we are willing to discard the truths found here in the Bible and trade our life that's set before us by God for the pleasures of this life. We trade the hope of our future in heaven for the treasures of this world that will be destroyed. I was invited over to my in-law's house a number of years ago and Bronwyn made a delicious lemon dessert. Bronwyn loves lemon. And as we began to eat the dessert, everyone else around the table was quite polite. They just sat there and ate it. But I could not sit there and not say anything about it. I just couldn't. The lemon flavor in this dessert was so intense that I couldn't stay silent. So I just sat there and I went, wow, this is lemony. <laughs> and I don't know how she did it, but somehow she made this lemon dessert so lemony that it was, it was more lemony than if she just grabbed a lemon and sucked on it. I don't know how she did it. It was incredible. It's like she got this flavor and condensed it into this dessert. And it didn't matter how much you tried. It didn't matter how hard, how much ice cream you put with it or anything. There was no way you could reduce the taste of this lemon. It was just so intense. And this is what our witness should be like in this world. For our community and our, for our neighbors, we should be as lemony as Bronwyn's Lemon Delicious. <laughs> and nothing should be able to hide it. Nothing should be able to mask the flavor. And the second metaphor we get here that Jesus uses is that we are the light of the world. He says in verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Well, the good, good deeds here that it talks about are done by those who follow Jesus. And they are done so the people will re recognize them for who they are and give glory to God. Now, the issue we have with good works and good deeds in our society is that people, whether they believe it or not, they just love to be seen and known by their good deeds. And so it's really difficult to see the motive or the intention behind people's good deeds. The trouble is that uh, when you help someone carry their groceries to their car, when you're at Kohl's, or when you step up and help out your neighbor who's moving house, you don't actually know if they're being seen by others as good deeds that draw them to Jesus 
or just good deeds for some other motive. So you might ask the question, should we just stop doing good deeds? Well, of course not. Jesus here says that they can be seen and they can give glory to your Father in heaven. And so just because we can't see how God is using our good deeds, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't continue to do them. Because the only other option for us is, if we don't, is to put our light under a basket. That is that we will become completely ineffective as a witness. And so it's not our place. We don't have the right to determine whether or not our good deeds or the good deeds of any other Christian around us actually are effective in God's ultimate plan for people's lives. I can't tell you what sort of a witness you will be if you stop on the side of the road and help somebody who has a flat tire. I can't tell you what sort of a witness you will be if you make dinner for somebody who's just had a baby. But Jesus tells us here that in doing them, we are the light of the world. And so we are to see our good deeds, not as something that we can boast about, but as something that God can use to bring others to himself. Now, uh, last week there was a question in the evening service uh, on Slido.com. And I mentioned uh, last Sunday night that I would address it in the sermon today. And the question uh, that was asked is this. What is the significance of the parallels between Jesus coming out of Egypt that we find in Matthew chapter 2 and giving this sermon and Moses coming out of Egypt and giving the law on Mount Sinai? And my answer in part is this. Matthew does not draw parallels between Moses and Jesus, but between God and Jesus. So for those of you following along in your Bibles, I'd love you to turn back to Exodus chapter 19 with me. I'm going to read Exodus chapter 19, starting at verse 16. Exodus 19, verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. 
Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord breaks out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai. For you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up and bring Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying. Chapter 5, verse 2 of Matthew. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. God himself brings his chosen people out of Egypt. And Jesus, as a boy, comes out of Egypt. God leads his people to the base of a mountain and then speaks. And Jesus takes his disciples up to the mountain and he speaks. When these things are mentioned here in Matthew's Gospel, it's to help those who read this understand that Jesus does not just have the authority found in Moses or the authority of one of the prophets, in the Old Testament, Jesus is likened to God. Jesus is equal to God. As he sits down on this mountainside and teaches them, Matthew is comparing Jesus' interactions with his disciples here with God's interactions with his people on Mount Sinai. And so it's not the parallel being drawn between Jesus and Moses, but between Jesus and God. And that is why Jesus can say what he says in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The Old Testament in its entirety pointed to a Messiah and a kingdom that would last forever. Jesus here claims himself to be the promised Messiah and king of that anticipated kingdom. And this is why he says that his life and his ministry are in no way in opposition to the Old Testament and its laws and prophets, but that his life and teaching are a fulfillment of them. He explains that his life is exactly what the Old Testament has been pointing towards. And so he fulfills the Old Testament in terms of validating it. He fulfills the Old Testament in terms of achieving what it could not achieve. He fulfills the Old Testament in terms of what has come before as being a shadow of the reality that is found in him. And so the prophetic nature of the entire Old Testament, all the way up until John the Baptist, has all been prophesying about Jesus. And so as Jesus continues with the rest of this Sermon on the Mount, he will explain how those who follow him, who are part of this kingdom, how they must view the Old Testament in a different light 
to that of the people who came before him. And so we need to ask the question, how do we observe the Old Testament laws differently now? Well, some of these laws no longer need to be literally practiced. For example, all the laws about the sacrificial system are no longer practiced as they were before Jesus, because Jesus has come to be the sacrifice once for all. So the ineffectiveness of the sacrificial system is made effective through Jesus' death and resurrection once for all. And so therefore we do not need to keep the sacrificial laws. We no longer make sacrifices for our sins. Jesus has done this once and for all. And so we observe the laws by accepting the free gift given to us through Jesus' death on the cross. And we observe them through repentance of our sins. Another example is the temple laws. The way the temple was set up in the Old Testament was done so to ensure those who entered into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, would not die when they came into the presence of God. And these laws, too, are no longer literally practiced. At Jesus' crucifixion, we have the curtain in the temple torn in two, symbolizing that we can now come before God and have a personal relationship with God and not die. We observe these temple laws by accepting Jesus as our high priest, understanding that it is through him that we now have access to our Heavenly Father. And so in other words, when we look at the Old Testament laws, we are no longer bound by the laws of the Old Testament. We observe them by accepting that Jesus has fulfilled them. But notice with me uh, what Jesus is actually saying in verse 19, when he uses the phrase, these commandments. He says in verse 19, therefore whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, being concerned about the kingdom of heaven that is at hand, is no longer concerned with the commandments found in the Old Testament. Rather, he is concerned about how God's people will live now. So just as God spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, explaining how God's people were to live for him back then, Jesus speaks to his disciples and explains to them how we are to live now. It is for us. It is a law for us who are part of his kingdom. And so his disciples are to be obedient to him and his teaching. They are to follow him 
rather than turning back to the Old Testament laws. And by doing so, look what it says in verse 20. It says that their righteousness will far exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. Verse 20 says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The righteousness demanded by Jesus here surpasses anything possible by the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus' way here is far more challenging and demanding than what was followed by the most zealous Jews. But friends, let me be clear of this. This passage here does not say that we can be more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees if we just keep the laws found here in these chapters. It does not say we can get into the kingdom of heaven by being righteous ourselves. Quite the opposite. After reading the Sermon on the Mount, we should fall on our knees before our Heavenly Father, being conscious of our inability to stand before Him on our own merits, being conscious that our attempts are futile, and being conscious that we are completely dependent on Jesus. And Paul, in uh, his letter to the Romans, explains it this way in Romans chapter 3, verse 20. In Romans chapter 3, verse 20, Paul says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law, Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all fall short of the glory of God. But we can be justified by grace as a gift. And for those of us who have received this gift, we have a righteousness apart from the law, a righteousness that far exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. And the Sermon on the Mount here is where we see Jesus explain to us that we are spiritually in need of what only he can offer. We are spiritually in need of his sacrifice. And so what does it mean for us to be the salt of the earth? Well, we need to stand out. We who are following Jesus, we may need to be more courageous, more outspoken. We may need to speak up for what we believe to be true and untrue. We need to find our authority in the life and teaching of Jesus. Do not become so contaminated by the world around you that you are completely useless as a witness for Jesus.
And what does it mean for us to be the light of the world? Well, here in verse 19, it says that we are to teach others what is spoken of here by Jesus. So through our good deeds and through what we say to those who may or may not be looking to us for help, we are to be a witness and do not lose the confidence we have because of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are not hopeless. We are not powerless. We can live lives that are countercultural. And we can be a witness to others as they find salvation in Jesus. And so they too can give glory to our Father who is in heaven. So how else can we be salt and light in this world? Well, we hear these words that Jesus speaks found here in the Sermon on the Mount, and we do them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have sinned and fall short of your glory. And so we thank you for justifying us through your grace, through the redemption that is in your Son, Jesus Christ. Put in our hearts the desire to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world so that we can be an effective witness to you. Strengthen our hearts so that we may live out each and teach each other your commands without boasting and without taking the glory for ourselves. Help us to be uncontaminated and pure in heart, to shine before others so that they may see our good works and give glory to you. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, you might like to take a few minutes to consider what has been said this morning and possibly ask a question using slido.com. The band will be up to sing in a few minutes. stand with us and sing as we remember that